Okay. <coughs> We've been working our way through the book of Micah, the one that everybody loves so much. You know all about it. Chapter 1, Micah gave him what for? Said to him, you've been fooling around with idolatry, ignoring God, you're in trouble. Chapter 2, he said, you've been coveting, taking people's property, you're in trouble. Chapter 3, he said, you eat them up like you're eating uh, a stew. <laughs> Cut them in pieces and eat them, he said. And you, uh, you're in trouble for that. And so he's careful, first of all, to point that out. And then he comes to chapter 4. And I want to tell you that these are not easy passages. This isn't something you're going to pick up and read. And some of the Bible is made just to pick up and read. You can read through a story and it'll tell you what happened and so forth. That is not what this is. This is much more difficult to read and much more demanding on you to try and figure out what it is he's trying to say. And uh, it's because he's a prophet. Now remember back in the first uh, chapter, the first verse, the word of the Lord came to Micah the Morastite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So he said the word came to him and he saw it. And we said back then that the word came to him, he should have heard it, right? If you hear the word, it goes through your ear. But that's not what he says. He says, God was talking to me and I saw it. And so he has visions. He sees things. And don't ask me to explain that. Nobody can explain it. Paul himself had visions and he said, I don't know what to tell you. Like I was in the third heaven. I can't even explain it. I can't even talk about it. And so the visions that come from God uh, must be fascinating. And uh, when Micah gets these visions, he's seeing things. And the only way I would try to explain it to you so that uh, you can get an idea of what it's like. And you know I'm not an artist, okay? You all know that because you've been watching me do these things before, okay? And you say, whoa, we know Eric is not an artist. That's pretty good. That's pretty good for Mountain. Yeah, but you don't know what it is yet. <laughs> it's, the, the way prophecy works, and when we read these, we got to get this in our mind. Uh, if you're looking off at a distance uh, to a mountain, my father was stationed for a little bit in Arizona, I think it was, or somewhere, and he said there was a mountain off in the distance. So me and a couple of guys said we're going to walk over to the mountain, which he would do always. And so he said I walked for like eight hours, and we didn't get any closer. It was a lot farther away than it appeared. He said, finally we found a horse trough and we jumped in and drank. Then we walked back because it's a lot farther than it appears. And so when you're looking off in the distance at a mountain and then there's one behind it, how far are they apart? Well, you can't tell. 
How far is that one from that one? Or that one from that? How far are they apart? I don't know. When you're looking, what you see is the top of the mountain there, top, top, top there, and you can't tell how far they are apart. Now, Micah is getting visions into the future. God's saying, take a look. I want you to look into the future. There's some things I want you to see. And so he's looking off into the future, and uh, he begins to tell us, well, I see this. Maybe that's on this mountain. Or I, I see that, and maybe it's on that mountain. So what's the distance between them as far as time? He can't tell. He can't say, all right, I had this vision, and then I saw this vision, and that was 2,000 years later. Or that was 50 years later. Or that was, he can't tell, all right? So he says, here's what I see. I see this, I see that, I see that. And these mountains are the high points that God wants them to see in history. And the distance between these events that he's seeing is impossible to tell. So what we hope is that we, looking back into history, can see how far things were apart and what happened. And so <clears throat> it's very challenging when you're reading Micah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of those uh, when you're reading those, you say, well, he begins to talk about, I see this. When? I don't know. I see that. When? That may be 2,000 years later. See, but he's seeing these events, which are like the main events in history. And so the closest mountain may be the fall of Jerusalem. We know that Jerusalem was going to fall uh, to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was going to come along and, and uh, knock over Babylon. Then he looks a little bit farther, and he sees uh, Jerusalem rebuilt. You can see that. He can see that into the future. He doesn't know how far it is. He can see that off into the future. And then he looks off into the future, and there's... Jesus. That's a major peak he's looking at off into the future. But he can't tell. He can't tell. And as he's talking to us about these things, he kind of run them all together. And we're saying, wait, wait, wait. What, what are you talking about? Which peak are you looking at? Can we tell what's happening by, by that? And then we're going to put on this one, the return of Jesus, where are we? Well, we're between these two mountains. And if we make time like this, then we can say, okay, uh, here's Micah. And then uh, so sooner or later, maybe in, in another hundred years, we get the fall of Jerusalem. Seventy years later, we know they're released from uh, Babylon, they're taken captive, and they begin to rebuild. Uh, and then we come up here about 500 years, and we get the birth of Christ. And all the events that happen in that moment, of course, you know that that's the greatest time in all of history. 
Everything that happened that made a difference in the whole world happened right around Jesus. What was it? Well, he's born, and then he's crucified, and then he's buried, and then he rises from the dead, and then he ascends back up into heaven, and then the church begins, and all those things happen right there, and that's the most active time in history. And here are we, 2,000 years later, there's us right there, and then somewhere off here farther is the last mountain when Christ returns, all right? And so we're trying to figure out where these things go, which mountain he's looking at. And sometimes I think he looks at two at once. Ha <laughs> ha, that'll send you crazy trying to figure out what is he talking about? So it's a, it's a very big challenge to figure these out. This is not simple. Uh, it's a challenge to figure it out. So we're going to go through chapter 4. Now we went through chapter 4 a little bit already. And we're going to go back again and think about it. Uh, and try to figure out which peak is he looking at when he looks into the future. So let's begin reading chapter 4. Because... I told you one thing last week, I'd tell you something different this week. I'm going to make you so confused when you're done, you don't know what this means. Uh, and I'll tell you why when we get there. Right, chapter, chapter 4. But in the last days, and that's what he calls it, so he's looking into the future. He says, in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills. People shall flow into it. All right. Now, it's hard for us to think like uh, Micah because we live now and we know about Christ. We know what happened. And uh, when he's looking into the future, he sees things and he's just, <sighs> wow, look at that. I never seen anything like that before. I don't know how that happened. So he's going to tell us in, in sort of a shocking way what he sees. He's seeing a vision. And he says that the mountain is established on the top of the mountain. So what he sees is built and on a strong foundation. It's built and he says nothing can take it down and the bible will say the gates of hell can't even take it down it's set on a firm foundation and he says people are rushing into it all right he says i saw it in jerusalem and people are coming from all over Lots of people, and they're coming in, coming in to what he sees. All right, now I'm going to tell you what I think he's seeing. Something he's never seen before. He's seeing the birth of the church. He's looking at this mountain. All right, Jesus has ascended up to heaven, and... It's 
40 days later, and the church begins in Jerusalem. And what happens the first day? 5,000 souls are added to the church, right? We read through the book of Acts. You recall, as we've had lessons and sermons, all about us, you already know all this, right? Yeah, you know. So the first day of the church that it exists, we get 5,000 people. Whoa! And what would happen if we got 5,000 people come in? Next Sunday, we got 5,000. What are we going to do? <laughs> we have to go outside. Seems like we've been outside. Um, and so uh, 5,000 people come. It's overwhelming. It's amazing. And even for those people who were there, remember there was 120 people in the upper room, and that was the church in the beginning was 120 people, which is not a huge congregation. Uh, it went to 5,120 in a day. And where are they meeting? In the temple in Jerusalem. And Micah says, I see this thing. It's established. It's strong. It's got a good foundation. It's well established. It's built, he says, on the top of a mountain. It's built on a rock. All right? And what are we saying? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So he says, I see this thing that's got a strong foundation. He says, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. That's what Jesus said about the church. And he says, people are pouring in. I've never seen anything like it. And they're pouring in to it. In verse 2, many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Right, and so the people are coming to learn. They're coming to learn. And this new thing, this church that he's thinking and looking at, he says, they're coming from all over to learn. And has ever been the job of the church to teach. From the first day it started, it's their job to teach. And if somebody's not learning someone somewhere, and we're not, it's not a church. Church must be teaching all the time and educating and doing our best to explain. And so he says they're coming in from all over, many nations. Right? Now the Jewish people before that, and in Micah's time, were very selective. They said, well, either you're Jewish, or basically what they said, you're a dog. And that's literally what they said, actually. You can be Jewish like us, or you're just a dog. You're nothing. If you're not Jewish, you're nothing. He said that whole attitude was gone because people were coming from all over the world coming in to the church. And that goes on and on. So here's an organization he's looking at that he's trying to see what it's like. And he says, uh, there's no boundaries. There's no borders to it. It's a kingdom. And a kingdom came into Jerusalem and it's a kingdom but that kingdom is is ignoring the boundaries 
of human ideas, and it's gathering people from all over. So there's people who are in the church from China. There's people who are in the church from India, people in the church from uh, England and, and Africa and South America, all over the world, because they're part of the kingdom that doesn't know any boundaries. It's not operating like the rest of the world. And so he sees this thing where the nations are just all gathering together. And he said, wow, this is different. Verse 3, he shall judge among many people, rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. All right. And so when we come to that, I told you last week, that that was up ahead, coming up ahead at the return of Christ when he comes as the Prince of Peace. But we have to entertain another possibility because we're not sure which mountain he's looking at. And uh, we look at him and he says, there's gonna be among these people, there's gonna be a mark of peace. Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be peaceful and people are supposed to get along right so what we're all doing here we're all getting along and having a good time right that's normal that's what should be it shouldn't be any other way and if you like me have been in the church where everybody fights that's not what it's supposed to be they're supposed to be a peaceful nature and it's based on uh, romans chapter 5 Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> we get the statement, clear statement here about uh, what this relationship, this new relationship is. Romans 5 verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? And so uh, he said this new organization that he's looking at is filled with peace. Now he says, does that mean this isn't true? Or which mountain's he looking at? I don't know. I don't know which one he's looking at. I think he's probably looking a little at both of them. And he's seeing, in the end, a time of peace. But he's also seeing this new organization that's rising up to be a thing of peace. And we're here to uh, make peace what it should be. Now, I'm going to throw you that curve, remember? So I'm going to confuse you. Ready? <laughs> well, let's start here. Let's put Jesus right there as our timeline. We go 300 years in, and Constantine becomes the emperor of Rome, and he says, I am a Christian. Now the Roman Empire begins to embrace Christianity. And then we go for a long time in something we call Pax Romano. Uh, which is uh, Pax Romano, a Roman peace. And they said that for a thousand years, there was peace on earth, and they called it the Pax Romano. And it would take us through the Middle Ages. There wasn't a lot of world wars and fightings and so forth. And then we come to the Protestant Reformation, beginning uh, with uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther 
helps to begin the Protestant Reformation. And he's somewhere 1600, we'll put a date there. And for a couple hundred years, it goes on and the uh, church grows and pretty soon in England, there's the English church, uh, Switzerland, there's a, a Presbyterian church in Germany, there's a Lutheran church, uh, and uh, all across the civilized world, they're all Christian nations. And everybody thought then that just a little longer and the whole world will get, be Christians and they'll all have peace. And in your hymn books, there's hymns that are written about that that say, well, the church is going to grow and it's going to spread and spread and it's going to go all around the world. And when it's finally all, all spread all around the world, then there's going to be peace. And Christ, one of the phrases in the song, Christ's great kingdom shall come to earth, the kingdom of peace and light. And so in people up through the 1800s uh, said, We'll just keep going. Pretty soon the whole world will be Christian and everybody will have peace. All right? Now, 1900s come, what happens? World War I, bang, the whole world's at war. 20 years later, World War II, bang, World War II is again. All right? And all the idea that the church was going to overcome everything and bring uh, the world to peace has all been thrown out the window. That concept was incorrect. Jesus himself already said what? There's coming a time that'll be worse than any time in the history of the world. Right? Jesus said that, they ignored it. They said, no, we're gonna have peace. And I read a lot of commentators from the 1800s. I find them to be superior to anybody else. Uh, but when I'm reading them about this, they say, pretty soon we'll all have peace. No, we won't, because the 1900s came to the 20th century, and we all had war, all right? And so a lot of my commentators say, almost there, we're almost ready for world peace, and then come the 20th century, and we get World War I, World War II. And so the idea that peace was going to develop in the world uh, didn't work, all right? It was an incorrect view of scripture because they weren't looking ahead far enough. They thought the church could do it, but the church didn't do it. Is it because the church failed? Well, there's a few reasons like that, but that's just side information. Store that in your brain. Here we go, verse four. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. None shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Everybody in the kingdom, which is the church, everybody in the kingdom of the church has property, so to speak. Uh, they, they have a safe place where they live on that property, and that property is the heart of Jesus. All right. We all own, have ownership in the kingdom. And he says, everybody has it. The mouth of the Lord is spoken in verse 5. And all the people will walk, everyone in the name of his God. And we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. So everybody's got a God, some kind of a God. 
You say, we, we don't believe in God. Well, then you're your own God. If you think you don't believe in God, that's what, then you're your own boss. You're your own God. All right? But he says, we will walk in the name of the Lord forever. Or we're going to live the way he wants us to live. Walk in his name. We're going to be what he wants us to be. And so the kingdom of Christ, which is the church of Jesus Christ, that he's looking at, he's trying to describe to us here, he says it's really something, he says, because uh, it changes the people that are in it. Verse 6, In that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth, will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that halted remnant, and her was that cast far off in a strong nation. Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth forever. So it is the work of the church to gather in the halt and the lame. Or we are here for needy people. I like what Jesus said. Uh, I'm in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, telling a story. And in verse number 21. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. That is, people didn't come to a wedding they were invited to. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servants, Go quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. So God said, I want people to come. Who? Anybody you can get. The ones that are in trouble, the ones who are uh, not able to go well, bring them in. The church is open to take in all kinds of people. And it was so that way until Paul probably said, well, when you look at the church, what do you see? Not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise. You just see people. Just see people. You look out across the congregation, who's there? Just people. Who's up there? Just people. Just people. You just see people, he says. They got problems, they got issues, and they got things that are wrong because they're gathered in to this group, this church, and they're agreed with that, all right? So, he says, I'm going to call, verse 7, uh, will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. The Lord shall reign over them, Mount Zion forever. So, he brings up that word again, there's a remnant. Remnant. There's a group of people, a minority, a group of people that are coming. Now, here's where it gets interesting, verse 8. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. All right, the tower of of the flock. Interesting phrase there. The tower of the flock. We're going to come back to that. And a tower over a flock would be a place where there were sheep and there was a tower. And they could climb up and look farther out and watch 
over sheep that way, all right, from a tower. And he says, the tower of the flock, stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, and the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, let's take a look back now at a different mountain, Jerusalem rebuilt. Because I think he was looking at this mountain, telling us what he saw, and then he started looking, oh, look at this mountain. And, and there's something about this. This mountain I gotta talk about now, that there's a remnant. There's a small minority of people, and they are in Babylon. They have been hauled off to Babylon. And he says, verse 8, O thou tower of the flock, stronghold of daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. All right, so there's gonna be a kingdom come from these scattered people. Nine. Why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. These people in Babylon, they cry. They cry out. What do they cry? I got pain. I got pain. Crying out in pain. Well, what happened to them? I wouldn't want to bend any of them. They came in and said, you're coming with us today, but I got a house. You got nothing now. You're coming with us. You're going to be a servant to the people of Babylon, the king of Babylon. So you come with us. And they took them by force away from their land into a far off place where they'd never been before. They couldn't understand the language, which was a major trouble that they had. And there they are way over there in Babylon. Uh, nobody's got anything. Uh, they are poor servants. And they said, man, this is a hard place to be. It hurts to be there. It hurts to be here. Life is horrible. They yanked us from our home, took us into a strange land. We can't even understand what they're saying to us. And they're in charge of us. And here we are. It's a horrible place. And uh, Micah says, what are you crying about? <laughs> I like Micah. What are you crying about? Quit crying. Well, we heard it's horrible here. We heard. He said, it's a different kind of pain. It's not the pain that you think it is. Verse 10, be in pain. I want you to have pain. And labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. He said, if you're feeling pain there in Babylon, he said, I want you to tell you this is a good pain. It's a pain of a woman who's having a child. She's trying to bring forth labor to have a child. And so you're there in Babylon for a reason, because the pain that you're going to go through is going to bring forth something. Let's see what it is. Verse 10. Be in pain, labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, thou shalt dwell in the field, thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. And so he looks 
from the fall of Babylon to Jerusalem rebuilt. And he says to the people in Babylon, uh, you'll be there 70 years and then you're going to be free. Yeah, you're going you're to be dispossessed for that time, but then you're going to be set free and you're going to be sent back. And the pain that you're feeling, what is going to be born of you will be that Jerusalem will be built and there's going to be a kingdom come to the domain, the old dominion. You people are going to go back and set up the temple and establish it again. And we have that in the work of Ezra and Nehemiah. Right? They go back and rebuild the temple. And so he's looking at that mountain for a minute. You getting confused? Because he's looking all over. Let's see what he says, 11. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. Or they wanted you to fail. Babylon wanted you to fail. Syria wanted you to fail. And there's a whole series of little kingdoms. And you read the little books, Obadiah, Nahum, all those little books that you've read so much. And what they are is the kingdom of Edom Edom was against Jerusalem. They clapped their hands when Jerusalem fell. And the other kingdoms in Moab and so forth, uh, all were happy to see Jerusalem fall. And he says, everybody's against you. Everybody's against you, he said. And they all think they're going to destroy you Verse 12, but they know not the thoughts of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor. He said, they didn't know what God was thinking. When they were, people were watching Jerusalem get destroyed, and these people are nothing but captives. And he said, well, those people are nowhere. They're never going to be anything. They didn't know what God was thinking. God had an idea. God had a plan. And God's going to work out his plan. And so he's going to gather them in. He gathers them in. And that means like you, you have wheat in a field and you, you cut it, tie it off in a bundle, and you bring it in to the threshing floor. All right, so now it's gathered in. All the wheat is cut out of the fields, brought in, gathered to a threshing floor. What do you got to do? He says, rise, verse 13, and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Get to work. I love it. I love it. I love it. He said, God's got a plan. God's got an idea. He's going to gather things together. That means you got to get to work. Thresh. I expect you to work for this. Get yourself together, and I will make thy horn iron and thy foot's brass. That means you got a big old iron horn, and then you can take on anybody. And your feet are pretty tough if they're made of brass. He said, you're going to succeed, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people. I will consecrate their grain unto the Lord, their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. You people who suffered was God's plan because you were actually bringing into birth a new thought, a new idea, one of God's plans. And so uh, this remnant he sees, 
I see you guys are suffering. I said, quit, quit whining, he said. It's God bringing something to pass. And so over here, he says something's going to come. God's going to bring something to pass. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid seas against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. All right. Get yourself together. Get yourself together in a troop. Uh, get ready. Ready to fight. Get ready to fight. Because I see something. Well, what are you seeing now? Well, look what I've seen. I've seen this organization, this kingdom, rising out with God's power behind it, cutting across all nations. I see this great kingdom. And I see you guys, you Jews, and you're kind of in real trouble. You're in Babylon, suffering over there. But if you suffer, it's God's plan to bring birth, some new birth. And he says, and you, something's going to happen. And so he says, get yourself together. I'm going to make you firm and strong. If you work, I'll make you strong. Now gather yourself in troops. Oh, daughter of troops, get yourself together. And they lay, he has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. All right, Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. When he's looking at these mountains, and he's trying to put the thoughts together, it's not easy for him either. And he says, wow, I see something in the future a powerful kingdom, and then I see you guys in serious trouble, in pain, and I realize there's a connection between that great kingdom and your suffering, and your suffering is going to bring something forth, so get your act together. He says, I saw, he says, I saw the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. All right, so we're in Matthew 27, in verse 30, and they spit on him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. And suddenly he sees in his vision the judge being beat in the face punched in the face. Now we know they punched Jesus in the face. And we know they hit him with rods. And they also hit him with reeds. They took cattails, basically, and hit him with those, making fun of him. 
And he says, I see the, the judge, and he's getting beat. I'm beating him in the face. And I really, I don't know. I don't know what to think. Why are they beating him like that? And then he turns his eye and he sees something that's familiar. He sees something. It's familiar. It's not a big deal, but it's familiar. He must have known where it was. Verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been of old from everlasting. So he sees this little town. Probably he was near there. Maybe he lived there. We don't know too much about him. But he was from the area, and it's called Bethlehem. He said, I'm looking off into history, and then I see this town. I don't know what he saw. I wish I could. I wish he could have told us. Should have seen it. It had a light on it, or it was gleaming in the dark. I don't know what. I wish he had told us what he saw. But he said, "I see this little place. It's insignificant. Doesn't amount to much. But the ruler of everlasting to everlasting is coming from that town." And he becomes the first one to identify the birthplace of Christ. His prophecy will be repeated in the very presence of King Herod. Do you remember this story? There's wise men coming from the east. And they come into Jerusalem. And they say, we've seen the star and we know that a king is born, so we come to see him. We ain't got no king here. <laughs> I got no king here. There's no king here. But thou, verse 8, tower of the flock, stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and the wise men come and ask King Herod, where's the king? There's no king here. And he quickly calls the scholars and says, all right, where's this Messiah going to be born? And they take him right to chapter 5, verse 2. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. They told him what Micah said here. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so what happens? The wise men go off to Bethlehem. And they find him. What's the strangest part of that whole story? The people who told them where to look couldn't be bothered. They didn't go. Somebody comes from hundreds of miles away and says, we've been looking at the stars and we've seen a new star and we identified it and we know it's a new king born. So where is he? And he said, well, we heard he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And off they go and they find him. Why didn't the rest of them go? Why didn't anybody ever go? 
and ask. We got Micah's word. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And why didn't they, for 33 and a half years, why didn't somebody say to Jesus, where were you born? Where were you born? And so in his mind, Micah says, I, uh, I'm confused. <laughs> I look at the judge, and they're beating him in the face. But I look over here in Bethlehem, and the king is born. And Jerusalem is seven miles away. And he's born right there. And there he is. But they're beating him in the face. It's a confusing thing, but you know why it was, because they never wanted to find him. They didn't want that to be who he was. And so their picture of Bethlehem is, is that's where the Messiah is born, and that comes from Micah's prophecy. Now, the tower of the flock. Outside of Bethlehem, up on the hills, there was a big tower, and it was a well-known place. And there were people who, for years and years, said, when Messiah comes, it will be to the tower of the flock. He's coming to the tower of the flock. Now, where do they get that idea? Well, it comes from here the tower of the flock, and you go way back into Genesis, and you'll find it again in Genesis, the tower of the flock. There's a place outside of Bethlehem where this tower was. And it was outside of Bethlehem, up on the hills, where the shepherds were watching over the temple flocks. And it was the flocks from Jerusalem that they were watching, not just any flocks. And they're watching over the temple flocks, and what happens? All of a sudden, it gets bright, and this one angel comes right down, he's right there. Man, I would have loved to have seen that. Huh? And they said they were terrified. They said they're sore afraid. They're afraid of him. And he, he comes down, what does he say to him? Uh, it's okay. Don't be afraid. I'm here to tell you that Christ has been born. The Messiah has come. And he's down in Bethlehem stable. So go down there and find him. So it's the tower of the flock. And he's seeing the coming of Christ, the announcement of it at the tower of the flock. He's told them he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And that's exactly what happens. And nobody ever looked for it. Nobody ever asked Nobody did a thing. And you say, what's wrong with people? Verse 12, they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. Right. He told them exactly where the Messiah was going to be born. Somebody else comes to town, tells them the same thing, and goes and looks for him. And you know that they found Jesus, and they were told by the Spirit to go home a different way. Don't tell them you found him. And uh, so they did. And so here's uh, a great thing happening, and all his visions are out of order, hard to follow. He's looking at this mountain, and seeing the church grow, he's wondering about that powerful kingdom. 
Right? And then he looks over here, well, you guys are in pain. Well, you're bringing birth to something. And they would go back to Jerusalem, and they would write, the prophet uh, Haggai would write and say, this temple that you're building, uh, it doesn't look very good. Solomon's was much better. Yours isn't very good, but yours is going to be the best because the king will come into that place. And you remember at 12 years old, he walked in there. And what did he say? <laughs> he said, this is my father's house. I'm come to my father's house. And he started uh, asking questions and answering questions at 12 years old. He was there. And so that place, Jerusalem, would be the center of the first dominion, all right, the Jewish people. He would become a Jewish, come there, but it would open it up to all the world. So he's looked at three mountains, maybe four. Can you follow them all? It's the plans of God unfolding. And God said, here's my plan. I have a nation. They've not done what they ought to do, but I've watched a little remnant of them. And I got my eye on those little group of them. And uh, I'm going to restore them and bring them back. And I'm always going to have my eye. And from uh, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, about 500 years later, Christ comes. And when he comes, there's a little tiny group of remnants Mary and Joseph, and I told you, uh, John the Baptist and, and his parents and a few others, and they're gathered together waiting for Christ to come, and he comes into the temple. And it's, it's all beginning. He's this founder of the great kingdom that will be there. So it's all God's one great big plan. Using the nation of Israel to bring forth a prince, rejecting the prince, striking him in the face. He's born right in Bethlehem, seven miles from Jerusalem. And he's the one that tells him, he's coming and I'll tell you where he's going to come. And that's where it is. And so uh, his points of view from one mountaintop to the next are really something hard, not easy to follow as he's looking and looking and looking. And he can't tell the space between them. But he just sees things happening. And so when we try to read it and understand it, it's hard because it's out of order, isn't it? It's out of order. What does he say? I see the king, the, the judge struck in the face. And then I see he's born in Bethlehem. It's out of order, right? But it's both comments because he's just telling us what he's seeing. He's looking up, I see this, I see that, I see this, I see that. And he's telling us, how do you tie it all together, Micah? Well, he said, you don't know the way God thinks. You don't understand the way God operates. And you need to learn the way God thinks and the way God operates, and then you'll make much more sense out of it, okay? So that leads us a little bit into chapter 5. We'll go more through chapter 5, and then we get into chapter 6, which is the most famous chapter of Micah. Uh, I don't know if we'll get into it a little bit next week. Maybe not, maybe not. Thank you.